2: Thank you all for being here for the Wednesday edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, It's the second day that Kevin McCarthy is not the speaker of the U.S. House. Uh, The votes will continue today. I get the fact that there are people, and I certainly include myself and I think panelists as well, who find the intrigue surrounding the Republicans' inability to get a speaker elected fascinating politics. I have to say that sitting in front of the TV and watching the clerk call all 435 members uh, by name three times <laughs> was not the most riveting TV I've ever seen. Uh, we now know that Donald Trump has, uh, has come out loudly in support of Kevin McCarthy, and there are Georgians who are involved in this effort, so we're going to talk about all of that and uh, a lot more take a look at some of the legislative issues before the state legislature, which will start its work on Monday and more. So let me get right to introducing uh, the panel. It's Wednesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal Constitution is political reporter, Greg Bluestein, who was one of those lucky people who watched Saturday night. You were in uh, you were at the game Saturday night when Georgia pulled out that mir- miraculous victory, right, Greg?
3: Yeah, we were on a vacation down in Florida after a cruise and I made the kids wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning so I could get back. I was on the sidelines for the game. I am lucky enough to to have sideline passes to help out our <laughs> photographers for many of those big games. And I'll be I'll be in LA on Monday for for the next game. So I can't wait. Of course you
2: will. Of course you will. Uh that game was remarkable. I said after watching Argentina uh beat France in the championship of uh of the uh uh, uh you know the uh, world cup that I would never watch soccer again it's too it's too heart-stopping I would have said the same thing about University of Georgia football on Saturday night um thanks for being here Greg Stephen Fowler is back this morning from Washington you were up there Stephen watching everything unfold from the house gallery so I'm really grateful that you could be with us today I'm
4: actually still here, and I'm wondering, am I going to make it back to Georgia before the House swears people in and has a speaker? And it looks like, after the way yesterday went, (laughs) maybe my flight might land before there's a resolution.
2: Yeah, who knows? Uh, Maya King, politics reporter for The New York Times, is with us as well. Um, Maya, thank you so much for being here. One of the things I'm interested in asking you about is, since you're based uh, down here here, um, now that the elections are over, what are you starting to look at next as you cover politics in the South?
0: Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Um, I will be looking at a couple other states across the South, particularly South Carolina. And I'll be doing some reporting around the DNC and the order of uh, of primary races in 24. But before that, I will be spending some time in New York doing some general assignment work through the spring.
2: Oh, well, terrific. Um, well, we're glad you could be with us today. And Anthony Michael Kreis, professor of constitutional law at Georgia State University, back with us as well. Anthony, you classes are out. You don't go back for a while. But you told us before the show started you haven't taken vacation. You've been working straight through.
1: Well, I, I had to finish a book. I had to finish grading. And then I, I had a you know a whole experience, out of body experience on Saturday watching the game. So I, I don't know if I've quite recovered back uh, fr- from that. So and, and now we got to repeat it on a Monday. So lots going
2: on. I know it's going to be quite a while before your, the book you're working on or now is uh, published. But tell us very briefly what is that book.
1: Yeah, so I've been working on a book on the history of constitutional law and American politics from 1828 to the present. So it's been a three-year adventure and looking forward to making more progress on it in 2023.
2: Well, I'm glad you could be with us today. All right, let's get right to it. Greg Bluestein, three votes yesterday. Kevin McCarthy could not uh, win enough votes to uh, be elected speaker. They start again uh, later this morning, and uh, we know that overnight there were negotiations trying to win over some of those people who have refused so far to vote for McCarthy. I think by the end of the day yesterday, the number who did not vote for him was up to 20, uh, which uh, really makes his uh, challenge even more extreme. But, Greg, I, I, let's immediately talk about where the Georgia Republican delegation uh, stands on all this. Um, Let's talk specifically about first Mike Collins, who promised during his campaign as a newly elected member of the House he would not vote for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker. He promised that on the campaign trail. Was he good with it to his word uh, yesterday?
3: No, he was not. And that was one of those pledges that he made (laughs) to stand out from a pretty crowded. Uh, Republican primary for that deep red Northeast Georgia seat that he ended up winning, but he was not good to his word. Um, like se- several other members of the Freedom Caucus who were undecided uh, in that first vote, they a few of them ended up siding with McCarthy, but as you noted, many of them did not. About 19 of those 20 No votes for Kevin McCarthy on the Republican side were Freedom Caucus members. But this was uh, this is something that one of his opponents, Vernon Jones, immediately has highlighted on Twitter saying, hey, he didn't he didn't fulfill that promise. There'll be payback to make. So we'll see if it actually matters in two years if there's a if he has a a significant Republican challenge. But for now, folks in the media and elsewhere are reminding him that he did not uh, live up to that pledge.
2: Stephen uh, Andrew Clyde was the only member of the georgia delegation i believe who did not uh vote for uh mccarthy who sided with the i guess we'll call them rebels for the time being
4: yeah and he spoke very briefly to uh tia mitchell the ajc's washington correspondent after The House adjourned yesterday and just said that he was still working on negotiations uh, as part of that group that's holdouts against Kevin McCarthy. But don't really know what that means. I mean, uh, Andrew Clyde, as part of the group of uh, Freedom Caucus members that have basically been given the store by McCarthy in his attempts to secure enough votes to get to the gavel, and there's not really much else that can be done other than Kevin McCarthy not being the one being speaker to satisfy the members of these Freedom Caucus. And I also talked to Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday after the House adjourned, and she has been one of Kevin McCarthy's biggest boosters and defenders, and she has been very, very frustrated with those Republicans that you would think she would maybe be a part of, but uh, she is Uh, very, uh, uh, I think the words, let's see. She said, she said, it's not a popularity contest. It's not who we like and we don't like. Uh, She said, that is the failure of Republicans. The Republicans are the party of never, she told me. And so she's got some pretty strong words and is uh, trying also to convince other Republicans like Andrew Clyde to, you know, take one for the team and vote for McCarthy so they can uh, move on and (laughs) be sworn in. They're not even sworn in yet.
2: Yeah, that's right. We don't really have a Congress until they elect a speaker. Um, So they're all sort of waiting for that to happen. Um, Maya and then Michael, I want to get both of you involved in this conversation. Maya, I've said on the show several times that it strikes me that assuming that Kevin McCarthy does pull this out, and that's obviously an unknown at this point, Marjorie Taylor Greene made a pretty shrewd decision to back him uh, because he is her route to getting it into a position of some power in the republican conference yes
0: yes and i think also solidifying her position as a leader and a real influencer within the republican party as she already has te- uh, definitely on the campaign trail um and she was one of the first people i believe to really make this argument particularly among those on the right who were jim jordan backers saying that we need jordan in a different position on these committees, that he will be busy, that he's not the one that we need um, to vote for McCarthy. However, that argument just hasn't seemed uh, to really break through with the people that it needs to
2: quite yet. So, Anthony, um, please weigh in on any of this. But if you don't mind, let me offer a a larger question. I I think for many people out there, this is like a, a, a bad circus, um, Greg Bluestein held up uh, for all of us to see the front page. I think it's a New York Post a little while ago, and the front page headline in very large uh, uh, font says "Grow Up." It, it this really does make the uh, the Republicans in the House look bad? Yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's the first time in a hundred years that we've not had a presumptive Speaker dele- uh, designate uh win on the first ballot but i i think what we have to understand too is that a lot of these folks have been empowered by mccarthy right a lot of these individuals who are objecting to his speakership um were the kind of pro-insurrectionist election deniers um and a lot of them, you know, were kind of coddled by McCarthy rather than pushed out of the party. And so, you know, while a lot of this, I think, is embarrassing for for McCarthy, it's a lot of his own doing and the Republican Party's own doing by allowing folks, um, you know, who just have no interest in governing but have an interest in sowing chaos for chaos sake. Um, and, and now, you know, that that's all kind of coming home to roost. And it's rather embarrassing for them.
2: So I, I want to pursue that a little bit more. But before we do, Stephen, you were in the House Gallery yesterday. You, as you said, you're still in Washington today. Uh, just give us a, 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 a look at what it was like uh, watching all of this unfold. What was the mood on the floor? Um, how were people interacting? Were there angry words exchanged? Just what did you uh, see as you sat there in the gallery?
4: Well, it was supposed to be a day of you know, kind of pro forma celebration. There were, you know, I got into an elevator with uh, Senate a minor, or a Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and his grandkids that were taking a tour of the house. There were tons of babies and grandparents and people that were there to do these ceremonial swearing-ins, and there were big parties. You know, George's Rich McCormick, who's a new uh, representative-elect still because he hasn't been sworn in. I talked to him, and he said he had a room at the Library of Congress for 50 friends and family there to celebrate. And that wasn't what happened. Instead, it was gridlock. There was a lot of frustration. Um You could pick up on the mics on C-SPAN as people were saying their votes, as some people would try to be funny and say, for the third and hopefully final time, I vote Kevin McCarthy. And so it was really painful for just about everybody involved, definitely painful for McCarthy sitting there with a C-SPAN camera trained on him as people are denying him the gavel, painful for Democrats who had to sit there to deny a smaller denominator so McCarthy couldn't win with fewer votes. and. It was just a very rough first day for what a lot of people was hoping would kind of just be a ceremonial affair.
2: You know, Greg, one of the things that I'd like to ask you about is what is the value of this fight that McCarthy is waging beyond his own desires to be Speaker of the House? It isn't as if large principles are at stake here, right? It isn't as if McCarthy has said, we need to expand health care for the American people. And I need a strong backing from Republicans in the House as I pursue uh, that goal. It it isn't as if uh, he's got some of these larger issues. This is primarily about a guy who's wanted to be Speaker for a long time, or am I not giving him enough credit?
3: Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's wanted to be speaker for years. He's been denied that opportunity in the past. He's part of the young guns that came up uh, to, to be a new era, a new class of Republican leadership. But it's hard to paint this as, you know, establishment versus conservative or, or that because he's done so much work to try to cozy up to the far right. He he, he won Jim Jordan's support. Uh, he's he's won support of other um, far-right members of of the House Republican delegation including as we mentioned earlier Mike Collins who even had pledged to vote against him so he's he's done that work you know he has drawn all these red lines and caved on red line after red line after red line including in what could be just an epic um reversal allowing a small group of Lawmakers, five lawmakers, to basically uh, cast a vote of no confidence and throw up the 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 leadership position in doubt all over again. If he does something to to tick off the uh, you know the, the far right in his own party, and so what we're seeing right now is, and this is what Newt Gingrich said yesterday, we're seeing essentially this small group of Republicans take the entire Republican Party in the U.S. House hostage um, over over uh, over issues where we're still not sure, you know, as as Andrew Clyde said to Tia Mitchell, when she asked him, what does this group still want in exchange for, for its vote? What would it take for them to vote for um, Kevin McCarthy? And he wouldn't say. So we're, we're not even sure what they want at this point, beyond some of the concessions that, that Kevin McCarthy already delivered.
2: Maya, uh, I, I think one of the things that may, in fact, for those people who are not really actively involved in watching politics. This may be uh, a fight they're not interested in at all. But in the long run, um, the inability of the Republicans to come together to elect a speaker portends some really difficult times ahead for passing uh, any kind of legislation that the Republican conference can agree on, much less get bipartisan support for. And that can include some very important measures down the road. Yes.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, even if we look at this through a political lens and say that uh, the politics of this do not bode well for Republicans, because they certainly don't, they don't bode well for McCarthy when he wants to actually pass legislation, if he does uh, make it through this really tough time, it doesn't bode well also for effective government. And I think that's what is concerned a lot of people that if the House cannot actually uh, elect a leader, what does this mean for really, really important legislation. How do we pass a budget? How does the government stay open in this next year? I mean, these are really crucial questions that, again, could very well be held up by a very small group of people who have proven uh, their influence in this moment, and and I'm sure uh, would not be shy about doing so again.
1: Anthony? Yeah, I, th- I think that we're in for a really rough couple of years. There are a, a, a Right. A sizable segment of the Republican caucus that just does not fundamentally want to govern. And that's going to make Kevin McCarthy or whoever becomes speaker. um, It's going to make their life, their job very difficult for a couple of years. And I think that means a lot of intransigence. Um, It'll be hard to negotiate with the Democratic Senate and the Democratic White House. And and I suspect that there will be um, a, a lot of a lot of uh, points of tension where things just won't get done, potentially government shutdowns, things of that nature. So, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's actually something that Joe Biden isn't um, unhappy with. Democrats aren't necessarily unhappy with. It gives that kind of do nothing Congress um, that's reminiscent of the the Harry Truman years. That, that Joe Biden can run against in 2024. And so the chaos for them is, is quite a benefit, but for the country's well-being and welfare, not so much.
2: Um, I think what you just said is particularly interesting in light of the fact that while Republicans are fighting about the job of speaker today, I think it's today that President Biden heads to Kentucky, right, where he's doing an event with, among others, Mitch McConnell. So here's the president trying to show, Greg, that he is willing to work across the aisle. And, of course, with a Republican House right now, he would really fervently desire the ability to do that. Um, And so just in terms of the optics, uh, the president seems to be uh, making a smart choice today while Republicans are fighting over on the House side.
3: Yeah, the contrast is very beneficial for him today. It's an improbable group of bipartisan lawmakers getting together uh, to really celebrate new funding of a, of a bridge that they couldn't have yep. been funded without bipartisan consensus linking Ohio and Kentucky.
2: All right. Um, I, there are a couple other aspects of this that I'd like to look at. Um, and, and I know it's outside of uh, our Georgia focus on most of these shows. But my I really think we need to talk for a couple minutes about the situation with uh, George Santos. Um, and the reason I think it's important is that here's a guy who the, your newspaper, your colleagues, really have exposed uh, just all of the lies, misleading information, um, indictments that now seem to be coming his way in Brazil uh, for uh, criminal, uh, uh, possible criminal behavior there. And yet, the leadership in the House, the Republican leadership, including McCarthy, have been quiet about this, and it becomes clear that McCarthy, who knows what he'll do if he does become Speaker, but in the meantime, he wants this guy's vote. And and I think the larger question there has to do with whether we've lost the moral, whether some parts of the political establishment have simply lost their moral compass.
0: I think one of the big observations um, to that point that I've made over the last several years, particularly under Trump, is that Republicans in this era really don't seem to want to act until other people step in and sort of force their hand. And I think you said that McCarthy really needs the vote of Santos and until brazil (laughs) or the united states steps in and and vets him or um i think a third party it's possible that the third party could come in and actually you know thoroughly investigate him which then puts his actual uh position as a member of congress in jeopardy i mean there are a lot of roots outside of mccarthy's leadership or republican leadership in the house that could jeopardize him but to back to that point though it is it is important to note that there is there should still be room for, for truth-telling um, and for a moral compass, especially among those who people have entrusted to to lead them. Um, and it shouldn't always be along partisan lines, but here it just seems like you have someone who is deeply flawed and isn't, I mean, at all who we think he might be. And as the information continues to come out, it really is jarring to understand um, but I, I do believe you're right. It's I think it's going to take a much larger hand here to make any moves uh, as it relates to whether or not this this George Santos will indeed be a, a U.S. representative uh, in 2023.
2: You know, Anthony, I'd love you to pick up on this. Um, but, and before people try to go to this notion of what whataboutism and say, well, Democrats have behaved the same way, I couldn't help but think about how quickly Democrats moved against Al Franken. Uh, when uh, he was accused of uh, behavior toward women that uh, Democrats in the Senate uh, found um, unacceptable. They, they very quickly uh, uh, moved on him. So, so I don't think Republicans right now have a whole lot of room to say, well, you do the same thing. Maybe there are examples that I'm missing, and I'd be delighted if somebody on the panel wants to bring some up. But this does seem to be a particular Republican problem right now.
1: Well, well, certainly Al Franklin, uh, Andrew Cuomo comes to mind of people who Democrats pushed yeah. out um, because they had issues, um, you know, but then you see conversely in Virginia with Ralph Northam and the, the lieutenant governor at the time, Justin Fairfax had some some controversies and uh, because the balance mm. of power would have been, uh, you know, at stake. There was a little more hesitancy to to maybe push folks out in the way that they originally might have otherwise wanted to. And I think that's what we're seeing with George Santos, right? We're, we're seeing a Republican member of Congress who won in a plus three Democratic district, um, who if uh, he resigned and a potential Democrat replaced him and then Jennifer McClellan wins the special election in Virginia. Now you have 214 Democrats in Congress. Um, and that even winnows, right, McCarthy's and the Republican Party's uh, majority in Congress and empowers people like Matt Gates um, and Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar and the folks who are this running this insurgency against uh, McCarthy's speaker campaign. So it will make governing even harder. Um, so not only does McCarthy need Santos' vote. For the speakership, but I think there might be a little bit of a hesit- hesitancy to push him out because he's much more likely to go with leadership um, and and give them a little bit more cushion than they otherwise would have.
2: Um, thank you for reminding me of those Democrats, especially in Virginia, who were hesitant to take action. Um, Northam, who was a, a, a essentially accused of some racist, uh, what many people thought was racist behavior, I think dressing putting in blackface at one point for a a particular party. Um, So thank you for reminding us of that. Stephen, get a last word on this in before we have to take a break.
4: I mean, it's the... Same margin that Nancy Pelosi had in the House for the last two years, but a wildly different makeup and composition. Because while you certainly have the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party that sometimes derailed some of the things in the House, and you had the Blue Dogs that also derailed some of the things on the more moderate side of things, it was still a Democratic-controlled Senate, Democratic-controlled White House. And so the end goal of stuff could actually happen was held as a cudgel over getting people in line. But for Republicans in the House, like, there's no chance of anything that they pass, You know, making it to the Senate and making it to Joe Biden's desk and getting Joe Biden's approval, unless it fits a certain thing. So the big tent that narrowly has that Republican majority is not going to be motivated to all move in the same direction at times because there's no bigger political payoff so that's why you're seeing the Freedom Caucus members dig in their heels, because Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, somebody else, the speaker, they're still not getting what they want in the White House.
2: All right. Um, one very last quick note, but we got to get to a break um, because, Greg, I want to answer a listener's question. I got an email from someone who I know listens to our show virtually every day. She says, are there other candidates uh, to run for running for speaker? And the answer is That's one of the problems. I mean, maybe Steve Scalise uh, could be a potential candidate. Uh, Some are saying there are a few other names. Jim Jordan has been nominated for the position, I think, on the second ballot yesterday. But he's um, a McCarthy backer. So there really aren't any significant alternatives to McCarthy, which is part of the problem, right? Yeah,
3: Jim Jordan says he doesn't want the job. He wants to be the uh the chair of the judiciary committee, I think it was. Um and and you're seeing, you know, Scalise has been quiet. He's been he's been relatively mum about his prospects. So he's his name is still out there. He could he could emerge. There's some other dark horse candidates, but there's no there's no consensus candidate right now. And that's the biggest problem. There's no consensus candidate that both the the varying factions all agree upon.
2: All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break on the show today. And when we come back, we've got some state issues I'd love to have the panel look at. This is Political Rewind.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me Peter Biello for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News's extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
2: Georgia State University's Anthony Michael Kreis, the New York Times' Maya King, Stephen Fowler, political reporter at GPB News, and Greg Bluestein Join us for today's show. Very quickly, before we go back to the panel, um, we're making some adjustments in our newsletters for those of you who are subscribers. As you know, every Wednesday, you've been able to get your uh, Georgia Politics newsletter from the Political Rewind team. Starting at the beginning of this year, we're combining our newsletters so that you will get on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, newsletters from us that will include uh, on any of those days, news about politics. And um, if you're not a subscriber to our newsletters, just do it at gpb.org/newsletters, and you can get on board. Uh, Greg Bluestein: um, The uh, uh, election to replace David Ralston in the state house has gone down to a runoff. The vote was yesterday. It's now between his uh, widow. Uh, Cherie Ralston, and a, a business executive up there, Johnny Chastain, they will uh, face each other on January 31st. But here we go, another example of why there are a lot of legislators who are beginning to think it's time we do something about this runoff system in the state.
3: You know, especially for special elections like this one that only attracted a few thousand votes. Now there's going to go into overtime. Now there will be uh, more strain on local poll workers and local elections officials officials to come back out and get you know even a fewer, a smaller number of people um, to, to head out there. And and th- this is this has not been one of the um the th- there are other races that were that triggered special elections with retirements shortly after the uh, the, the November election. So there's a lot of frustration about some of that those races as well. But look, there's going to be a big drive at the state capitol to revisit some of the the runoff laws and to explore ranked cho- choice voting or lowering the threshold from 50 plus one to 45%, maybe 48%. I think the most likely, at least at least what I'm hearing from lawmakers, the most likely consensus is actually going to end up being maybe even a longer runoff period to give uh, more of a chance for early voting. But we'll see. A lot can happen over the next few months when the legislative session kicks off.
4: Stephen? Yeah, there there are uh, there are so many different types of elections in Georgia, and they're always happening. But you know, in a case like this, where uh, there were uh, five different people running, a runoff was almost going to be an inevitability, especially when you factor in just how few people I mean, the you know, Cherie Ralston got 3582 votes, and that was 45% of the total. But it, it is I will say an election like this, a special election is probably one of the types of elections where lawmakers will keep the runoff because there is no limit on how many people can be on the ballot so long as they qualify. Uh, Primary elections are also another uh, type of election where they'll probably keep runoffs because political parties want the people that represent them for things like everything from state house all the way up to the governor to have a broad consensus support of the party and to disincentivize a bunch of people jumping in. And then all of a sudden you've got a random nominee who uh, has uh, now your nominee with maybe 11 or 12% of the vote. I mean, the lieutenant governor's race in 2022 was an example of that. You know, Kwanzaa Hall uh, managed to get into a runoff for that race because a lot of other well-known candidates kind of split the vote, but then when it went to the runoff, uh, he didn't end up doing it. And so there are different races that will likely see runoff loss change, but something like this is a good example of what will probably stay pretty much the same.
2: Anthony, we've talked on this show about the historic roots of runoffs in Georgia. We're one of, right now, two states, a third is coming. Mississippi is about to start, along with Louisiana, uh, which has runoff. Um We know the historic roots of this were to prevent black uh, candidates from winning elections, Um, but that was quite a long time ago, and uh, I I don't know how that factors in quite as much uh, today. Um, But there is an argument to be made by some that to get a majority of the vote, in fact, is uh, better for our democracy, better for the candidate who wins, to know that they have the majority of the vote. Why don't you and and then Maya, I'd like to hear your take on that too.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. The Georgia runoff system was initially <clears throat> implemented as a way to suppress Uh, you know, black voters from having an overwhelming say in the outcomes of elections. But I think today the argument, and and this has been an argument that's gaining some traction nationwide, is that we really should not enable, one, uh, spoilers to upset the outcomes of elections. And we should also empower voters to express their actual will. And so you've seen States like Maine and Alaska move towards runoff voting, right, or instant runoff voting with ranked choice. And that's something that Georgia could also adopt, which we could maintain the 50 plus 1 rule without forcing voters to go back out to the polls again. Um, and now we have the technology and the capacity to do that. And so I think that's really what's intention here, right, is how do we preserve those democratic norms that enhance the power of the majority without putting unnecessary burdens on the voters of Georgia, who have been asked time and time and time again to to go back out and and vote, when we can do this one time in one shot, and I think that's really the tension that we're going to have to address in the upcoming legislative session with any reforms.
2: Maya,
0: I agree. I agree with that completely, and I think I'll add that you know when you have a, a runoff or a fifty a fifty percent plus one threshold um, as Georgia does, it makes it really difficult to uh, essentially for someone to feel uh, inspired to support a third party candidate because they could also be thought of as voting for someone who is going to, I guess, derail a race, but people should have the right to do that, to vote for who they want to. Um, so it's clear that that some reform is is definitely needed here. And um Secretary of State Raffensberger also pointed out Georgia's status as one of the only lower final remaining states, particularly in the south, that still even employs a general election runoff, saying that we're kind of behind on the times here. Um and I I agree with that stance, you know, that it's kind of time for us for Georgia at least, and a, a new Georgia transplant, but I do agree with this to sort of upgrade um the way that the way that Georgians vote uh, in the state.
2: Um, all right. Uh, we're going to watch how that unfolds at the Capitol. By the way, uh, I, I do want to point out to listeners, we talked about the uh, fact that it, there was a time when the legislature reduced the uh, necessary uh, threshold for runoffs to 45%. Um, and we talked about that for quite a while on the show yesterday. Chuck Bullock. At University of Georgia, who wrote the book literally on runoff elections, uh, uh, sent me a note pointing out that the 45% threshold, which only lasted for a relatively short period of time, only applied in general elections. It did not apply in primary elections. And I'm glad Chuck sent us that note, and I just wanted to clarify that. Um, Stephen Fowler, uh, sports betting uh, appears to be back on the table. It looks as if uh, once again, there's going to be a push in this in the legislature to make it happen. What are you hearing about whether there really is going to be some movement there?
4: Well, you know, first, I was in Ohio over the holidays at my in-laws, and Ohio just had sports betting take effect. And every single ad on every single social media site I use, virtually every other ad on every TV show that I watched was promoting sports betting, promoting the different, uh, you know, promotions that they had for, you know, put in this much money, you get this much free money and things like that. And so the sports betting palooza in Ohio is in full swing. And I think things like that might influence some of the legislators here, depending on how that shakes out and how much money it brings in and how people like it that i think the dam is slowly starting to break with other states in sports betting where georgia is a little bit more receptive than they were in years past especially with the way Stacey abrams pushed it and framed it for democrats to see it as a more bipartisan win greg
3: yeah i'd, I'd wager this is the year that sports betting is passed in georgia we've we've seen this debate for years and years and years Um, Look, I mean, the casino advocates, those who want to legalize casino gambling and horse racing will try to lump it in together with with um, sports betting because they know that that has traction. And so that could derail it. But I think the watershed moment was this year after Stacey Abrams in in the 2022 campaign um, endorsed legalizing casino gambling and sports betting. Governor Kemp stuck to his position that he opposes legalizing casino gambling, but it wouldn't take action to stop lawmakers from doing so. But that was also the first time where his office said publicly that he plans to work with legislative leaders on a measure to allow sports betting in 2023 if he's reelected. Well, he's reelected. Um, the Metro Atlanta Chamber is behind this. A lot of powerful business interests. And of course, the sports teams are all behind this. And they're they're all pointing out that Tennessee has already legalized um, sports betting. So other Southern Republican-led states have already taken this step and they're leaving revenue on the table. So I, I think this is the year it gets done.
2: Anthony, it's not as simple a matter to make this happen, even if people want it as a, as a simple majority vote and the governor signs the bill. It's a bigger process than that, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so so I think, right, we will we have a whole constitutional conversation <clears throat> as well, um, and it'll mm-hmm. go to a... a right? Statewide referendum, essentially. And for me, I think, right, I, I mean I I really don't care either way personally um but to me right the fascinating aspect of this is how this kind of relates to the changing demographics in Georgia and the changing um right in- interest group uh controls that have been kind of long existing in Georgia right so so for a very long time I always heard well this will never happen because the Georgia Baptists are against it um and that was like that was just the end of the conversation um right do do right. Do evangelicals in Georgia have waning political influence in the General Assembly? Right. That's a that's a question that I think, right, is is much bigger than just the issue of sports gambling and, and betting. Um, but it certainly right. I think is is very telling about where Georgia has been, where Georgia has is going. And, and right. Can, will tell us where we're at now.
2: My this there for some of some members of the legislature, this is still a tricky vote. Um, and, and part of it is the evangelical uh, uh, Christians out there who oppose this uh, in a very, very strong way. I go back all the way to 1990 when Governor Zell Miller uh, w- ran on the issue of starting a state lottery. And once he put it in place, what after having been elected, his he had a harder fight to win reelection than many people ever expected he would, partly, uh, because of uh, 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 evangelicals who were really opposed to what he'd done in terms of, uh, of what they thought of as gambling, a lottery.
0: I think, from a national perspective, the way that I'm looking at this is, you know, how has Georgia state house politics changed, or what can we say about this new state house with new leadership? As we've mentioned, hmm. the demographics of the state have changed significantly, but now, what does that mean for lawmakers in the chamber, and whether or not they would be willing. Uh, particularly in these more rural parts of the state uh, to follow suit, if, if especially Republicans in the state house sort of see the writing on the wall with things like this and uh, decide to move forward. And whether that gives way to other legislation, I don't know. But it is really a fascinating issue to explore, particularly through the lens of of uh, how political ideologies are are changing at the state level here in Georgia.
2: Absolutely. Let's do this. Let's get final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, I want to take up a couple of other issues. One of them, Greg, has to do with the story that you reported out yesterday. Um, Governor Kemp and uh, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones have uh, signaled that they are going to take a strong stand on trying to curb uh, violence in the state of Georgia. We'll talk about what that means. And then I want to talk a little bit, since we have Anthony Michael Kreis. Uh, with us. A uh, little bit about what's happening with the Supreme Court of the United States and Title 42. Let's get to these messages first. Greg Blustein, uh what does Governor Camp want to do when he says that we need to uh, uh, crack down on the violence in this state, which he does, to some extent, make a partisan political issue, blaming the problem on uh, liberal local district attorneys who refuse to fight crime the way they need to. What what does he have in mind? Yeah, you know, it's really
3: interesting because we don't know much about his second term agenda. He, he's issued some policy statements, some platform. He didn't have to go. Um, he didn't have to be as aggressive as he probably would have otherwise been because he was leading Stacey Abrams in every single public poll since that May primary of last year. And so while Stacey Abrams had hundreds of policy proposals, literally, you know, more than 100, um, uh, Brian Kemp didn't didn't do that. He, his criminal justice policies, his platform was rather modest. He talked about um, uh New crackdowns on human trafficking, gang violence, along with proposals to limit no-cash bail. But now he's signaling he's going to go beyond that. Um, In tweets along him and incoming Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones sent over the weekend um, and over the holiday break, they were uh, attacking far-left prosecutors. They were going after uh, what they see as lax criminal justice policies. Um, from Democratic officials and local government. And so one of the things I expect we might see is more oversight, more efforts for state oversight over local prosecutors, because in particular, Governor Kemp highlighted a story in the Athens Banner Herald that talked about how uh, a county judge recently dismissed a sexual assault indictment after the prosecutor, after the DA, um, couldn't meet his speedy trial demands. So I could expect the governor to endorse efforts to sanction or over or at least offer more oversight uh, for local prosecutors who are deemed not uh, not living up to to, to to the governor's view of how the public safety law should be followed
2: you know maya i'm interested in this uh, because uh i don't think anyone would argue that there's been a lot of violent crime uh, certainly in the metro atlanta area shootings are uh, ubiquitous now, um, as are other violent crimes. Um, but I find it interesting that the governor in his tweets chooses to make it such a strongly partisan uh, issue. This is the sort of issue you would expect that perhaps could be a big bipartisan push to try to crack down, find ways to come together to pass legislation that hope that we would hope might have some impact on crime. And yet, It's almost like he's still kind of in campaign mode the way he's expressed it.
0: That's exactly what I was going to say. It just sounds like a continuation of his campaign message, and perhaps in some ways it is, right, to uh, pass legislation that will um, solidify more support from his base and make sure that Republicans are still comfortable with his leadership. But I think also this reminds me of uh, the Buckhead City movement that took place uh, Mm. luckily, last year, where we saw a lot of. Wealthy conservatives threatening to actually secede Buckhead from the rest of of Atlanta. And that would have been a huge blow to business and really not a great look for Republican politicians, at least those who are closely aligned uh, with with the business side of things. And this feels like sort of a means of getting ahead of some of that, or at least trying to quiet critics who might say that while Kemp really ran a large a campaign that was largely centered on getting tough on crime, um, whatever that looks like he may not have come out very early doing so but now he can't say now you can't really you can't really le- levy that criticism against
4: him steven well i i think it is also important to consider that uh, when it comes to district attorneys and prosecution it is inherently political to a certain extent because you know we, we don't have district attorneys We have district attorneys that are Democrats, we have district attorneys that are Republicans, and they run as such, and they're elected as such. And so it's a way for both the party, I guess in this way, it's a way for the governor to point out the Democratic district attorneys and Democratic policies and Democratic stances on things and the ways that he feels that he and the legislature should... Enact more conservative Republican policies around uh crime and things. And we have to also remember that the district attorneys in Georgia do have relative wide leeway. You know, it's not like there is a step-by-step guide of somebody sitting in Atlanta and saying, Okay, district attorney in the this judicial circuit in South Georgia, these are how you have to handle these five cases that you have this week. And so we do see a lot of discretion and we do see a lot of variation in how these different circuits handle cases. You know, the legislature's added uh, resources for judges and they've added resources for uh, prosecutors in some areas and some budgets over the years. But then you've also seen over the last several years a fairly decent number of district attorneys in Georgia have some sort of issues. I mean, just look down. On the coast with ahmaud arbery and the way that case was prosecuted or not prosecuted there were three or four different district attorneys out of the 56 in the state involved in that fiasco and so you know there is probably an appetite in the legislature to have maybe a little bit more legislative oversight into how district attorneys do their job and it's not just a democrat bad republican good thing
2: Okay, so Anthony, to finish off this part of the conversation, the proof is in the pudding. What exactly uh, could the governor's office put forward as legislation uh, to address this issue?
1: Well, I, I think the reason why we're seeing such a partisan divide is for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think it's important to set out that prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion, and exercising that discretion is incredibly important to ensure that justice is meted out properly and that people are not put away for crimes that they should not be put away for or overly uh, criminalized. And I think that's very important. Uh, the governor pointed out a, a an instance in Athens, uh, which I think was more of a prosecutorial misstep than it was a willingness not to enforce the law. So I find the whole conversation about this to be somewhat disingenuous in that sense. But I think the final issue in terms of legislation is that Democrats and Republicans see crime very differently and responses to it very differently, right? For on the one hand, you have Democrats who think that, you know, Guns being proliferated uh, on the streets is a major problem. Meanwhile, Republicans are loosening gun restrictions in the state. Uh, You see Republicans who see more police as the answer to everything, Uh, whereas Democrats, I think, think of crime and response to crime as being much more multidimensional and and requiring a a much more systemic approach. So there's a real fundamental disconnect.
2: Okay, Uh, I want I want to have just a couple minutes because we're running short of time to ask you. Anthony, about the fact the United States Supreme Court has now uh, uh, d- told the Biden administration they, that they are going to uh, review Title 42, uh, which was the Trump-era uh, rule that prevented people from uh, who wanted to seek uh, refuge in the United States from coming across the border doing it here. What's happening there? You've got these horrible pictures of uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of people uh, in in cities along the border, who are waiting to cross over to seek uh, to become refugees here? What is the Supreme Court going to take up on this? So the Supreme
1: Court has has put uh, the the kind of status quo um, on you know in in well they they've left the status quo in place until they can hear the the case and you know more fully on the merits, uh, which is remarkable because generally speaking. Um, you, know, you would never have a court telling the executive branch what to do in terms of immigration policy, for one. And second, uh, Title 42 is a pandemic public health measure. And this is a court that has basically uh, given short shrift to any arguments that the pandemic, pandemic has required significant executive power to combat, whether it be vaccine mandates or the, the eviction moratorium that was imposed by the CDC. The court has kind of you know, laughed that off as being uh, a, an abuse use of executive power. And so for the court to force a policy in the name of the pandemic and public health uh, against the will of the executive um, is really a a raw political partisan power play. And it's not law.
2: It's another example that we see where people are concerned about the politicization of the United States Supreme Court, by the way, uh, just a little appetizer on that issue right now, because tomorrow among our other panelists, Chuck Cook, immigration lawyer, will be here, and we'll go into this with Chuck in a little more uh, uh, depth. Uh, One final uh, word, Maya, you talked about uh, in terms of gambling in the state, the changing face of who Georgians are, and it might be more acceptable. I got an email from a Presbyterian minister who has not given me permission to use her name, so I won't, but she says, I was listening to the panel. I believe that conservative evangelicals, especially Southern Baptists, did oppose the lottery in the 90s. I think the changing face of evangelicism across the country, as well as in Georgia, means that gambling isn't as big a deal now. Maya, you had your finger on the pulse, <laughs> at least of the minister who responded to us. So thank you for that. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Um, Maya King, thank you so much for uh, being back with us again today, Anthony Michael Kreiss, always a pleasure. Stephen Fowler, are you up there to watch the vote unfold today? And will we get a report from you later on? Uh, you will get a report,
4: but I am heading back home because I cannot wait for 100 ballots to resol- resolve it.
2: <laughs> and we're talking, of course, about the fact that uh, the uh, U.S. House will be back in session, hoping to find a way to elect a speaker today. Greg Bluestein. Of course, loved having you on the show today. Uh, we won't see you between now and when you head to L.A. for the uh, championship game. Have fun out there in California. Bring the dogs home with another victory, Greg. Thanks for being with us. No. We're out of time. Go ahead, Greg. <laughs> no, dogs. Go, dogs. Back with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Liga. Take care. Stay healthy. As I said yesterday, I had COVID. Get all your shots. It was mild because I've had mine. Take care, everybody.